Hello. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, we're wrapping up our Dr. Thomas Neal Cream saga with the last year and a half of his life. If you haven't already, go back and listen to the first half, you weirdo. It's a good one. <laughs> I'm so excited. Are you going to give a little recap when the episode starts? Yes. Okay, good, because it's crazy, man. I'm really into this. Uh, <laughs> we want to send a major thank you to Scott and Jessica, our two newest members of the Muriel's Murders Patreon. As soon as you join the Patreon party, you immediately start supporting this podcast. Plus, you unlock five exclusive episodes, the tales of Daniel LaPlante, Dr. Pignataro, Georgia Tan, the Mountain City Murders, and Muriel's take on the true crime classic, The Black Dahlia. Patreon is cracking off. Thank you to Scott and Jessica. Yes. Thank you, Scott and Jessica. All right. Now we're back to Dr. Cream. Remember, everyone, this is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. Plus, we'll probably do a little cursing and joking. So if you're sensitive to that, please be warned. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No. Okay, let's get started. Okay, folks, remember, listen to last week if you're not caught up. For those of you who are with us, we will do a solid recap to jog your memory. Hold on to your butts. <laughs> All right. In the fall of 1891, Dr. Thomas Neal Cream left North America with connections to six murders, four times as a murder suspect, one time as a defendant in a murder trial who was ultimately acquitted, and one time as an actually convicted murderer uh, for which he served about 10 years of a life sentence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other recap was I just really inappropriately had giggles the entire episode. I know you were giggling. I know. I don't know how this one's going to go yet. All right. Well, Dr. Cream, now going by the alias Dr. Thomas Neal, Settled in London, renting a flat in the slum of Lambeth, where he worked as a doctor in training for St. Thomas Medical Hospital. Yes. At this point, Dr. Cream was fully funded with his portion of his late father's estate. He was armed with a fresh new name, educated on the ins and outs of navigating some of the worst slums in London and North America. Yeah. Hopped up on cocaine. (laughs) And tapped into a seemingly endless supply of poison. <laughs> He's also dressing insane. Yeah. Well, I mean, for the time, I think he was dressing like a very fancy man. But Yeah. Sort of like a, a Monopoly man, but in purple. Is yeah. how I envision him. Right. Exactly. Mr. Peanut, if yeah. you're not from the States, that's the planter's peanut guy. He has a monocle and a top hat and a cane. He's just <laughs> yeah. very fancy. Fancy gold watch. He does have... One eye that points permanently in. He yes. has corrective gold glasses. You know, he's he, a very distinctive dude. He reminds me of like a wild, insane banker character from like a Terry Gilliam movie or something. Nice. So you have lots of references <laughs> for how this man looked. Uh, so now 
we go to the rainy streets of London on October 1891, just a handful of years after Jack the Ripper terrorized the city and disappeared. (laughs) And yes, while last week's episode was dedicated to our Canadian listeners who have been hitting us up, this week's episode is dedicated to our British listeners who have been sending us some sweet DMs, you know what I mean? Showing us some love. Okay, you guys, this one's for you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited. Okay, well, here we go. All right, good. On October 13th, 1891, it was a really cold, wet night in London. So Mm there had been storms that had passed through earlier. It was Mm -hmm. really windy, kind of pouring down rain. And... 19-year-old Ellen Donworth was hanging out near the Waterloo station in London looking for Johns. So she had a room just a short walk away where she took men that she met outside the train station. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ellen was from a smaller town outside of London, and she had gotten pregnant at 16 and left home to live with the father, who was also just a kid. Uh And her story is her baby died at birth, and... Uh her partner lost his job and, yeah. and then the factory where Ellen worked closed down. So they were in London, they had no money and they were out of work for a few months. Yeah. So Ellen started working as a prostitute and they both lived off of her income. Yeah. So Ellen was standing against a wall in the rain when suddenly she fell forward face first into the sidewalk and cut up her face, bruised herself. And it was so abrupt you know, everyone was shocked and a guy nearby ran over and helped her up. Yeah. And he was like, how can I help you? What do you need? And she says, I just need to get back to my room. Uh So on the walk back to the apartment, she's kind of unsteady. And then she starts violently twitching and having these spasms. Oh no. So the guy and Ellen's landlady helped her into bed where she started to have these full body seizures like these convulsions and ellen while she was having these convulsions which kind of happened sporadically so that's a characteristic of strychnine poisoning Mm -hmm. is that you'll have these big huge seizures and then kind of go back to complete normal baseline level so they're just really abrupt and and sudden so while she was having some time between the two seizures she tells her landlady that a tall, dark, cross-eyed man gave me something to drink. And Mm. she said it was a white liquid. Uh. So there was a lot of chaos. A medical student had been called to the house, probably from St. Thomas. And as he's watching her die, he says, this looks like classic strychnine poisoning. Yeah, And they load her into a cab and they try to get her to the hospital. There's no cure, but I don't know if maybe there was... They felt like something could help. Yeah. Um, And then Ellen ended up dying in the cab ride to the hospital. (sighs) So Ellen's autopsy revealed strychnine and morphine were in her system. Annie Clements was a domestic servant at the apartment building. And she said Ellen had received two letters from this cross-eyed man. And that Ellen had plans to meet the man the night that she died. Uh Uh-huh. Annie told police that the man had asked for the letters back before Ellen's death. So no one really knew what was up with the letters. They were gone. You just have this servant girl saying, oh, there was this man and, you know, these letters (laughs) 
were written and then she said he wants them back and they're kind of like okay well well that's so shady He's right. like, do you know all that evidence that connects me to that dead woman? Do you mind if I just get that back, please? Right. I think he actually had asked Ellen for the letters back. Mm-hmm. So not the servant. But he had given Ellen these letters. Ellen had read them. Yeah. And then when they had met up later, he had asked for them back. Okay. <laughs> Which is still shady, right? Yeah, it's very course, odd. It's so shady. I mean, this guy is the worst. Okay. And the only other thing of note was that Annie said the handwriting on the outside of the letters was womanly and neat. So I think this kind of indicated to investigators that the suspect may have had some higher education. It's of note, right? On some level (laughs) or another to them. (laughs) It seems like a throwaway clue, Mm -hmm. especially since no one had actually had the physical letters and they were working off Annie's impression, but it kind of just remained in the ether. There's a distinctive handwriting component. Yeah, it's like anyone with that fancy of cursive must be a lady. Yeah, something like that. Right. right. Or that it's like some very highly educated guy hanging out in Lambeth. No, right. You know what I mean? Writing these letters. I wonder if he, or he could have been specifically trying to make the outside of the letters look like they came from a woman so people would be less suspicious of them. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I haven't I haven't read that. But yeah, that could be something. <laughs> you know I, I mean? love you so much. You put some stickers on right, it, exactly. you know what I mean? Okay, okay. Yeah, maybe that was true. <laughs> All right. But there is actually a connection to the handwriting mm-hmm. that will come into play later. Somewhere in London at this time, unbeknownst to anyone in the police department, the London coroner, George Percival Wyatt, who was working Ellen's case, had actually also gotten an odd letter in neat, womanly handwriting. Mm. And the letter read, quote, I am writing to say that if you and your satellites fail to bring the murderer of Ellen Donworth, alias Ellen Linnell, late of 8 Duke Street, to justice, I am willing to give you such assistance as will bring the murderer to justice, provided your government is willing to pay me 300,000 pounds for my services. No pay unless successful. Signed, A. O'Brien. So basically Mm -hmm, the letter mm -hmm. means, right, if you can't find the murderer, I'll find the murderer. I know who did it. And at this point, there is no murder. They don't know. They're not even classifying this as a murder yet. Oh, really? Okay. So there hasn't been an inquest into her death that has just happened, Mm -hmm, right? mm Mm-hmm. And he's saying, basically, I'll find the murderer, but will cost you the modern equivalent of over $40 million. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so it's a little like getting a letter from Dr. Evil from Austin yeah. Powers. $100 trillion. <laughs> like, people are just like, what? <laughs> like, it's pretty outrageous. Yeah, so yeah, because... Yeah. The coroner, Wyatt, thought the letter was for sure a prank. He didn't say anything to the police. (laughs) So at this point, there is some connection to this handwriting, although those letters are now gone, right? The letters that Annie had are now gone. So coroner Wyatt thinks total prank, doesn't tell police. And the police (laughs) just kind of go on with the investigation. So after gathering all the evidence, the Metropolitan Police concluded the following. Annie Clements was just making crazy crap up. There was no tall, cross-eyed, letter-writing man. Ellen's death was actually a suicide by strychnine because she was depressed about being a prostitute. 
one of the supervising officers actually stated, quote, I do not think that there is the slightest evidence of foul play. So <laughs> even though they had just gone through Jack the Ripper killing women exactly like her. Yeah. And that she had said I was killed by a man who gave me poison. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Described him. <laughs> <laughs> so the London Metropolitan Police were all in complete agreement that the witnesses were crazy. Landlady's crazy. Uh, Annie Clements is crazy. Mm -hmm. Ellen poisoned herself. But they did wonder, how did she get the poison? Because you should only be able to get straight up strychnine if you were on a doctor's registry. Mm -hmm. No one else should be able to get it. But soon, police got what they believed to be a break in the case. So three days after Ellen Donworth's death was ruled a suicide with no co coroner's inquisition at this uh -huh. point, a man named William Slater took a girl out on a date. He took her to a pub. They're kicking it. He thinks he's really charming. Yeah. And he tells her, you better watch out because if you're not looking, I'm going to poison your beer. <laughs> And he has some sort of white liquid. Okay. All right. right. Mm -hmm. So they got no fight at the bar. She's super pissed. And <laughs> Good for she, her. yeah, right. And she goes straight to the police and she reports them where the lead detective on the Ellen Donworth case yeah. is there. And he hears this evidence and he's like, white liquid, poisoning a girl at the bar. This is my guy. Yeah. So this guy, Detective George Harvey, he takes notice. So they find Slater, and Slater's like, I was only joking. I was drunk. That was really dumb. Uh -huh. But he gets charged with attempted murder. So they put William Slater up in a lineup, and one of the witnesses who saw Ellen Donworth with three Johns the night she died uh -huh. saw William Slater and says William Slater was one of the men. So William Slater is charged with Ellen Donworth's murder. But it turns out the case was super weak. It was like weak as heck. Yeah, weak there as heck. There was no physical evidence. There was no evidence of any type of poison. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, the other witnesses, because there were a lot of them. She was at a really popular train station when mm -hmm. she passed out. So people had been seeing her with Johns all night. Yeah. And so the people who witnessed anyone who was associated with Ellen Donworth that night didn't recognize William Slater. So this one person kind of was mistaken. Okay. So they had a whole lineup of witnesses that couldn't pick him out. Right. And really, it turns out, William Slater was just trying to make a hilarious joke, <laughs> and he failed. <laughs> so the charges were eventually dropped. But now we have Ellen Donworth's case reclassified from a suicide to a murder. Mm. Now they've decided that it's a possibility that she was murdered, but basically that case goes cold. They stopped trying to really investigate okay. it. Okay. Just because they're like, yeah, people are passing around white liquid. Maybe she was onto something. Right. But they're still not taking into account the statements from the landlady and mm -hmm. the housekeeper about this tall man. And they're not taking into account Ellen's actual claims, <laughs> yeah, right? right? Her testimony. Yeah. So just eight days after this, on October 21st, 27-year-old Matilda Clover was found writhing and twitching in her bed in the middle of the night. So 
Matilda was a chronic alcoholic and worked as a prostitute in London where she rented a room in mm-hmm. Lambeth. Mm-hmm. When she heard Matilda screaming, her landlady and her housemaid, Lucy Rose, ran in. And Matilda, between her seizures, tells them she's been poisoned by a man named Fred. So apparently this man named Fred had given her pills to take right before bed that were supposed to prevent her from getting STDs. Uh huh. And when a doctor finally arrived a few hours later, he diagnosed her with seizures from alcohol withdrawal. So they said, she's an alcoholic. Yeah. This is how she died. Delirium we know her history. Exactly. Yeah. So Matilda died two hours later. Damn. Now the doctor who had witnessed Matilda's death was not her regular doctor. She knew He knew of Matilda, but this was just the only doctor they could get to come to the house. Her regular doctor was either out on a call or MIA. Okay. So a few hours after her death, her regular doctor shows up to the scene. And the landlady tells her regular doctor that Matilda had drank an entire bottle of brandy before bed. So... If you know anything about delirium tremens and the fact that she died just a few hours after drinking the brandy, yeah, because she had drank so much alcohol right before she had gone to bed, there's no way she could have been in withdrawals at right. that point. Right. So she's saying to him, you know, the the first doctor says she's going through withdrawals, but I'm telling you, she drank a whole bottle of brandy before she went to bed. Was that first doctor Dr. Cream? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But all of this is just important because we're going to talk a little bit about her death certificate. Uh So Dr. Graham had been treating Matilda for alcoholism. And even though he didn't witness her death, he took it on himself to write her death certificate, which only the attending doctor should have done. So the attending doctor is the one that came to the house first. Right. Mm -hmm. And he witnessed what was going on before her death. But she didn't write a death certificate? He didn't write a death certificate. I think he left right before Matilda died. Mm -hmm. But this doctor, Dr. Graham, shows up, and even though he didn't actually witness the way in which Matilda died, he didn't see the type of seizure she had. He just decided, I know her. She's an alcoholic. I'm writing her death certificate you know, for delirium tremors. It's just unbelievably horrifying that it's just very common for people's last moments on earth in this time period to be shaking and convulsing and seizures. Well, and that there's kind of different reasons, you know, they're yeah. like, oh yeah, well, we'll see like this will happen common. They have like different reasons for those things happening. And, you know, for their part, the landlady and her maid, Lucy Rose, really took Dr. Graham aside and they said, you know, she took these STD pills and she was she took them from a guy she said yeah. she thinks poisoned her. And Dr. Graham just basically was like, y'all are lying. You're trying to make this really dramatic. It's not dramatic. She's just an alcoholic. <laughs> He's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Are you a woman uh, poverty stricken? Then <laughs> clearly I'm not going to believe He you. was not feeling it. So yeah. according to Dr. Graham, there was no mysterious Fred hanging out in Matilda's apartment hours before her death. And there were no pills. <laughs> in fact, Lucy Rose actually told Dr. Graham also the mysterious Fred had offered to pay Matilda to keep her off the streets. And then he wrote her these elegant letters in this beautiful handwriting, Mm. inviting Matilda to go on these fancy dates with them. But 
Lucy Rose said, even though she had seen the letters herself, when she went to go find them, they were gone. They were gone. <laughs> this guy, Dr. Cream, just like, okay, this is my signature move. I have incredibly recognizable handwriting. I write letters to all of my victims and people I'm blackmailing. And then people witness me take them away. <laughs> it's a very, like, strange logic. <laughs> But, you know, Lucy had seen the letters that yeah. didn't exist again, right? She had heard that he had given her pills. She knew his name was Fred. And she also knew what he looked like. She's like, he's a tall guy. He's got gold glasses, top hat, overcoat, really nicely dressed. <laughs> Just because it was one of my favorite parts of last week's episode, Muriel, uh, even if you guys have heard this already, would you mind just sort of describing his drug-induced personality at the time also, just to really paint the picture of the type of person who is taking these actions. Right. Remember, he's taking a lot of cocaine, a lot of morphine, and he does take, <laughs> occasionally take strychnine, too, for headaches. <laughs> yeah. And he's described as somebody who is very suspicious, jerky, uh, erratic, moving very quickly through <laughs> a room. Super paranoid. Very paranoid. He has a really loud, humorless laugh aggressive and then he also had a uh, strong habit of showing people porn that he would carry around on his person <laughs> and he likes to talk about to people about poisons and poisoning yeah. and and like women and shit right and just like go up to every single person in a bar just like <laughs> what's going on <laughs> and like shove porn in their face yeah and everyone's just like get away from me i mean some people thought he was awesome but some people definitely were <laughs> like that guy is a guy to avoid he's also very wealthy appearingly very wealthy yeah you know so that's another thing at play he's got where, a gold pocket watch yeah it's like people don't believe that people at that like financial stature yeah. would be uh, actually as crazy as they're acting right. they get a lot of benefit of the doubt which i think still happens today right? yeah. oh you think <laughs> okay thank you for that painting of the picture just so we can get back in that mindset of this guy okay so we've got this maid who's witnessed everything mm -hmm. who's now been branded as like a like hysterical lying woman <laughs> the other thing that's true is we're not gonna get too deep into this but there were actually two other women who had had interactions with fred or this man quote unquote fred yeah the idea is if dr graham had actually listened to this landlady and her housemaid and said those things to the police along with the death certificate and decided to just pass along the information. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't even have to decide if it's true or not right. true, right? Just pass it along. If he had done that, then they might have found out that there was A, another person who says they were poisoned by a man. Yeah. And if they had knocked on some doors, they would find two women who that night had a date with Fred. So basically... Later, during Cream's murder trial, two women who were working as prostitutes came forward and they told the jury that they had actually gone on a double date with Fred. And after the date, Fred had sent a letter requesting another date with them. And they were actually hanging out, waiting for this Fred guy, looking out the window. They lived right next door to Matilda. And the two women spotted old top-headed Fred mm -hmm. following <laughs> Matilda into her flat. So they were waiting for a date that night and right. he went with Matilda instead. All this information is just literally right there. 
like they're next door neighbors. Yeah. So they're all kind of there, but it, it stops with Dr. Graham just deciding that these women are making this up. Yeah. So the two women who had the date with Fred never saw him again after the yeah. Matilda thing. Can I insert something real quick that I think was an important thing that you brought up in last week's episode, which is important to remember, mm-hmm. is that people from these parts of town will talk to a doctor, but they don't talk to police. Right, exactly. So it's like they'll tell the doctor and they think like, okay, I trust this person. Here is that authority figure they have that information but if cops come around they're not going to talk to them right they're a lot less they're a lot more reluctant some will Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. but they're a lot more likely to talk to a doctor that's true and i don't know how it hurts the doctor to just pass on that information yeah (laughs) no it just hurts their sense of selves to believe them i guess i don't know well regardless because dr graham lied on her death certificate matilda was buried six days later there was no autopsy and no police questioned the women who knew quote unquote fred and saw the whole situation with matilda play out from their bedroom window (sighs) r.i.p matilda so a week after matilda clover's death a 20-something named louisa harvey met a cross-eyed doctor with a fancy top hat and a conspicuous gold watch in front of a theater so after the show the two went to the nearby paris hotel and had sex and in the morning the doctor paid louisa five pounds Mm -hmm. which is more than she would normally make in a week Mm -hmm. it was a, a really large amount of money for her and this seems really almost too good to be true right he's just taking her out whining and dining her taking to a fancy show so it's like not really Uh typical for girls who are working as prostitutes at the time right Right. and the hotel that he took her to the paris hotel was a Mm -hmm. very nice hotel got it so she's thinking wow this is amazing this guy is splurging on me but she has a little spidey sense tingling about this dude. Well, he is like doing cocaine and jawing and acting crazy, I'm sure. I'm, I can't imagine him just like, you know, snapping into suave dude mode. Right. It's a little more like, uh, yeah, right. You know something's wrong, <laughs> yeah. but at the same time, it's just this crazy opportunity. Yeah. So whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. So she agrees to go with him on a second date the next day at a nearby theater. He lets her choose whatever show she wants to pick. And so she's like, I want to see, you know, this this show. And mm-hmm. he's going to buy her tickets. And she's excited. Before the doctor left, he said to her, you have some pimples on your forehead. So I'm going to bring you some medication tomorrow to clear them up. And then he left. So... Louisa shows up the next day and the doctor's there and he sweeps her off her feet and they have this romantic date with wine and roses and then he leads her to this secluded place near the theater next to a, a very steep embankment and he pulls two pills out of his coat pocket. Luckily, even though he flashed a lot of cash, Louisa thought this doctor was a total weirdo. <laughs> And she had a male friend of hers trail her throughout the date. Smart. She's a smart girl. So she's sitting there on this embankment in the dark, but her friend is like nowhere near her. Mm -hmm. And she kind of needs to be her own rescuer, right? (laughs) Okay. Keep her wits about her. So she's definitely suspicious. But she's alone and she's standing on this embankment And the doctor tells her, I want you to take these pills for your acne. And she goes, okay, thanks. And she tries to put them in her pocket. And he says, no, I want you to take them now. And I want to watch you. 
Creepy. They're looking at each other and she's looking at him and she takes the pills and he tells her to open her mouth and let him check. So he checks inside her mouth and then he makes her open both of her hands and show him both of her hands to see them, make sure that the pills are gone. Wow. So this is the first sort of insight we've had into how he actually behaves when the women take the things. Right. So satisfied she had taken the pills. The doctor then suddenly tells Louisa, unfortunately, I have to go back to work. I actually can't come to the show with you, but I'm going to pick you up after the show and take you back to the Paris Hotel for another night together. I'm so sorry, but I'll be here as soon as the show's over. In in a world where there's no cell phones, it's kind of like, well, you could have told her beforehand. (laughs) I mean, this is the creepiest shit in the whole world. So Dr. Cream leaves, or the doctor, excuse me, the doctor (laughs) leaves, and Louisa really wasn't having any of this. She had actually pretended to take the pills with this masterful sleight of hand. She had chucked them down the embankment. So she like did a big dramatic, put the pills in your mouth and then (laughs) flung them over her shoulder. She said, I'm just getting in mood to watch the show tonight. Right. I'm excited. Oh, they're gone. I took them. So she's watching this guy go off into the night. She's like, I'm not going to take these pills, but I will meet you after the show to go to the Paris Hotel. Mm -hmm. So she goes and watches the concert. She comes out and she waits and she waits and she waits. And the doctor never shows up. Yeah, He's MIA and he never contacts her again. Now, around the same time, according to evidence presented at Cream's trial, In November-ish, a number of rich Londoners started receiving letters accusing them of poisoning murders in Lambeth. (laughs) He really thought he was going to get away with this, huh? Right. He loves... uh, This man loves to write some letters. I know. I just feel like it's just like that coked up mentality of like, I got a business plan. I mean, it is. This is going to work great. He has so many business plans. There's more. (laughs) Under a fake name... Cream wrote to a wealthy publisher pretending to be a lawyer uh, telling him that he had found evidence linking him to Ellen Donworth's murder. Mm-hmm. He also put together a fake postmark letter incriminating the publisher and said he would make all of this go away if the publisher hired him as his defense lawyer. So <laughs> Cream had written no Cream had written a letter under an alias, under a fake, fake defense lawyer, lawyer yeah, yeah, yeah. and was like, Yeah, I'll make it all go away if you hire me to defend you. He's not a lawyer. Yeah, right. So I don't know what he was expecting if they went to trial. Just like a check in the mail and then you cash it and disappear. I mean it must be, right? Did at, he know any of these people? Were they like, Oh yeah, like at the trial were any of these fancy Londoners be like, Oh, I did meet Dr. Cream at a dinner party one time. I don't know the answer to that. I think yeah. a lot of high society people know each other through each other uh-huh. but uh, at the same time it's not like cream was doing a great job he was under an assumed alias he was yeah. dr neil yeah so nobody knew that he was connected to the canadian creams and yeah. he was hanging out at bars like showing people porn and being a weirdo so <laughs> i don't know if he was really running in the circles that would know him yeah but sure. there's he probably knew of them enough to know who to target. Is it okay with you if I keep calling him Dr. Cream for the remainder of this episode? I just think it has such a good ring to it. Yes. Okay. And during this time, Cream was pulling all sorts of similar schemes. He accused a cardiologist of murdering Matilda Clover with strychnine, which, by the way, Mm -hmm. Matilda's official death was 
delirium tremens and she was buried. (laughs) So now you've got in writing (laughs) Matilda's name associated with strychnine and murder, right? Yeah, right, right. He also actually accused a countess who was in London at the time. Uh, he accused her estranged husband of killing Matilda with strychnine. A countess? Yeah. Like uh, the dowager or something from Downton Abbey? Yeah, right. Like a fancy person associated with the royalty? Yeah, right. Damn. So he was out there finding names and sending things. She was a divorcee uh-huh. and she was a singer, I think. So I think she was probably more of a black sheep of that world. But yeah. he found he knew her enough to send her this letter and say, your ex-husband or the man you're divorcing uh, killed Matilda Clover with strychnine. So he's got two letters now in circulation associating Matilda's name with strychnine. Damn, this guy is a dumbass. <laughs> While the claims were outlandish, right? Mm-hmm. Reputation was so important in Victorian England that the scheme was actually kind of smart. But the blackmailing didn't work, ultimately. All the targets ended up sharing their extortion letters with police. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, They did not investigate the Countess's claim for some reason. They kind of brushed her off, but... Well, that seems to be the the way they're treating all the women. (laughs) So weird. But um, they did, like, set up some stings, Mm -hmm. and no one showed up to collect the money. So while Cream didn't get caught, Mm -hmm. he he did make a few boo-boos. He did give police a reason to think Ellen Donworth's death might be suspicious. Mm -hmm. And he set the pieces in motion to connect Matilda Clover's death with Ellen Donworth. And that link is now in distinct handwriting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Plus the letters he added had details that even the police weren't aware of at the time, right? Like Matilda Clover being poisoned. Sure. So now we have all of that in the ether. It doesn't Mm -hmm. come into play until later, but those letters are kind of floating around. And one thing to remember, and we talked about this before, is that districts didn't used to communicate with each other. So if there were different police officers in different districts and they each had a letter, they wouldn't necessarily (laughs) share that information with each other. So people just didn't know. Plus, you have the coroner's letter, right? Right. Yeah. Literally the fanciest, most, uh, you know, doodly daddly cursive paper trail going across all of London. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So later that fall, sometime in late November, Louisa Harvey, our lady who threw the pills down the embankment, mm-hmm. was chilling on a busy intersection in London's West End looking for John's when the man who had tried to force her to take mystery pills emerged from the crowd in his fancy top hat and approached her. So he's super suave and he gallantly invites her out for a glass of wine. The twist being he completely didn't recognize her. (laughs) So Louisa Harvey is looking at this fool and she's like, do you remember me? (laughs) Yeah, right. And at this moment, he says, you know, no, I'm sorry. I don't remember you. I I need a little more information. And she says, it's me. It's me, the girl you stood up outside the Oxford Music Hall Mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago. And Cream is like, sorry, man, I got nothing. I have no idea who you (laughs) are. I've done so much morphine since then. And so she looks at him and she goes, it's me. It's me, Lou Harvey. And Cream turns white as a sheep and 
turns around on his heel and just like runs off into the crowd. Without I can just imagine word. his crooked eye just straightening out, zoning <laughs> in on her. It's just like, I gotta go. Bounce. <laughs> wordless straight yeah. back through the crowd right yeah. now if you were to be suspicious about those pills that yeah. would probably be the nail in the coffin for right? sure so louisa then continues on with her life with this memory in mind now later in the year cream gets engaged he meets a woman 20 years younger than him named Laura Sabatini. Mm -hmm. And within just a few weeks, she agrees to marry him. She's the daughter of a landlady, you know, so she's not super wealthy. And Cream is this really fancy American doctor. All Laura really knew about Cream was that he was a doctor from America and that he took opium for his headaches, Mm -hmm. right? So it's probably a marriage of convenience on some level, but definitely she's committed to him and they're going to do this thing. Right. But meanwhile, back in Canada, cream's family is getting disturbing news from London. Okay. So a Presbyterian minister and family friend who lived in London said cream was acting super crazy. (laughs) Well, let's not forget that Dr. Cream was also a Sunday school teacher and like super active in the church for Pretty much his whole life. Right. So this departure yeah. for him and behavior is very extreme. Yeah. And, you know, he's just barely out of prison. He's out of prison for like a handful of months. <laughs> I forgot right? about that part. <laughs> <laughs> so he had just yeah, yeah. gotten out of spe- like spending 10 years in prison. Yeah. So this minister says cream is acting super crazy. And this was really bad news mm-hmm. that especially that he was out and about on the town, you know, he's saying this guy needs to be contained. Yeah. He has no buddy who's checking him. He's just out here doing whatever he wants. Completely zero chill. Right. So I'm guessing that despite the fact that Dr. Cream had been living a life of a degenerate weirdo without yeah. any legal consequences, yeah. he was starting to have some social consequences, uh-huh, which uh-huh. in the Victorian era carries a really high price. Yeah. All the London circles that included the Canadian creams knew all about creams, drug use and porn and menacing in public restaurants and <laughs> yeah, yeah, his yeah, insatiable yeah. desire for prostitutes. And uh-huh. people were talking. That's, probably what was going on yeah right i (laughs) mean the cornerstone of that behavior was to do it in public in front of everybody right so i'm sure people started to know and the behavior is so crazy right at any rate with or without the rumors cream had actually spent all the money from his father's estate in two months damn he was completely broke so a second Paris hotel, yeah, fancy dates with all these girls. Exactly. A and lot of morphine and cocaine. Exactly. Exactly. And he's not working. He's just out there just being completely weird. Right? Oh, right. So he's saying, oh, I'm this doctor, but he doesn't have a practice or anything. He's not doing anything. He's not practicing <laughs> medicine. He's just spinning his watch around. Yeah. So a second family friend contacted Cream's brother in Canada and arranged for the family to pay a boat ticket to bring Dr. Cream back to Quebec. Mm. Cream didn't really have a choice. His blackmail schemes hadn't worked out, so he was out of money, (laughs) and London was obviously getting complicated. So he said goodbye to his fiancée, and he headed back to Canada in January 1892. Like calling the wedding off goodbye? No. He says, listen, I love you. I have to go back to Canada for a Mm -hmm. bit to resolve some money issues. Got it. And then I'll be back. 
And this is all about six months after he's been released from prison. He's on a ship back to Canada. So, of course, according to witness accounts, Cream was a total menace on the boat trip back. Oh, no. <laughs> he was trying to... <laughs> He was trying to get off of morphine, yeah. so he was super jittery uh-huh. and really wild and just getting hammered on booze yeah. and talking to anyone he could about the classics, how many women he'd had sex with, how he was really into poison, how he knew about a bunch of unsolved murders <laughs> and the knew of a murder of a woman in Lambeth, yeah. all of this stuff. Right. Uh, at one point, he even tried to give one of the passengers a mystery pill, uh, which they declined okay good (laughs) (laughs) so cream arrives in quebec on january 20th 1892 and he ended up staying in a hotel instead of his estate because his brother's wife had banned him from the house good for her yes i mean everybody's like okay (laughs) like i'm uh there's gonna be this big concept in the future right now we're just gonna call it boundaries right so no you can't be in my personal space (laughs) right so months later hotel guest john mcculloch told scotland yard that cream brought him into his room and showed him a massive stockpile of poisons and boxes of empty gelatin capsules that he said he gave to women for abortions. Mm-hmm. So this is just a random guy that Cream made friends with in the hotel. <laughs> and Scotland Yard did invent- eventually come and do an investigation in North America to try to figure out who this guy was. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right. So this is why we know some of this information. Sure. Okay, so... After Cream shows him the gelatin capsules and the poison, (laughs) McCulloch is like, okay, not quite sure why you're bragging about this, (laughs) right? But I guess it sounds legit like you're just telling me your things. Yeah. And then Cream pulls out a big fake beard out of a box and he says, He wears it so women couldn't recognize him if they saw him after he gave them the pills. (laughs) Which, you know, sounds like something a doctor wouldn't do. (laughs) It seems kind of suspicious. (laughs) Later, McCulloch and Cream, they're best buddies now, so Uh they decide to go on a sleigh ride in the snow to tour the town. And <laughs> I guess they feel really close. This guy's like, you know, this guy really shared some intimate secrets with me. Yeah, I got his pills and then the fake beard he wears. <laughs> yeah, he's so my gonna, best friend. He's my best friend. Let's so, go on a sleigh ride. Right, right. So they go on a sleigh ride <laughs> yeah. and they're sleigh riding through the snow and Cream is taking a bunch of morphine in the back of the sleigh and then also shows him his porn collection on the ride. So that's like <laughs> what they do while they ride the sleigh ride down. Yeah. So eventually... After all of this fun that he's having, Cream's brother <laughs> sends a lawyer to the hotel with 1,400 pounds. It's a payoff. He mm-hmm. says, after this, you're not going to get any more money. You're going to be cut off from the estate for good. Oh, so he, the brother sends this to Dr. Cream. Right. They okay, don't even talk okay. to him, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how he thought that was going to solve anything. He's just got a brother that's completely out of control (laughs) and he just gave him more money with the (laughs) warning that you won't get more. I'm just like, I don't understand how that would have helped anything. Right. But I guess maybe they think he'd be less shameful if he had enough money to get a leg up and Mm -hmm. a second chance. I don't know. Sure. So cream kind of continues his 
joyride in this hotel. He loves this hotel. Mm -hmm. And in this hotel, he also meets a rep for a drug manufacturing company in North America. Oh, damn. That's the big time right there. Right. So the guy thinks Cream is super shady, like all the druggists did before him. Yeah. <laughs> but he fills Cream's large order of poison and opioids anyway. <laughs> So Cream is sitting here going, man, this is awesome. I got to be a rep for this drug company. So he gets that drug company guy uh -huh. to give him the information for his boss. Uh -huh. And then he travels to go meet this boss. And his, to try to be a job to try to get a job there. Yeah, right. To okay. try to get a job there. Now, Cream has this plan. He wants to sign up as a representative for this company and he wants to, he's like, oh, I'm going to get all kinds of samples for all kinds of drugs. And his plan was to then make a fortune in England selling pharmaceuticals to doctors from the United States. Mm -hmm. Now, this ended up not working out. The drug company wasn't interested in having a London representative. So could you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> but they did agree uh -huh. to sell him a suitcase full of opioids and poison for $20. Oh, my God. So, you know, he's like, eh, at least it wasn't all bad. Yeah, right. With all his business wrapped up, he decides to leave the hotel in March. But before he did, he wrote a note about a different hotel in London and had about 500 copies made. And the note reads, the subject is Ellen Donworth's death. To the guests of the Metropoli Hotel... Ladies and gentlemen, I hereby notify you that the person who poisoned Ellen Donworth on the 13th last October is today in the employ of the Metropoli Hotel. And your lives are in danger as long as you remain in this hotel. Yours respectfully, W.H. Murray. <laughs> now, there's a lot... Do you unpack about this? Yeah, It actually never comes back into play, but yeah. I just think it's hilarious when you think about how many schemes <laughs> this man is trying to do. Yeah. So while he's in Canada, he's writing, getting 500 copies of notes to go frame some guy who works at a hotel in London. And he's already working on this scheme. You know what I mean? And and he's not connecting it back to himself. He's just trying to take down the hotel. Nobody knows. Did it he just, send the letters? No. <laughs> I mean, it was just one of like 50 things he was trying to do. He's trying to yeah. scam his brother. He's trying to become a pharmaceutical rep. Yeah. He's trying to blackmail people. He's trying to like take down a fancy hotel in London. And yeah. he's trying to murder a bunch of people. Yeah, and he has murdered a bunch of people. Right. So he's got a lot. I just wanted to include that because yeah. it's just another thing. That he, another ball he has in the air. So yeah, that was right. another scheme. And I can't even figure out what that would have been. <laughs> but I just think it's so ridiculous. So he takes his 500 copies of his <laughs> weird extortion yeah. note. And his 1,400 pounds that he got from his brother. Yeah. Right as a parting shot, he actually mildly poisoned one of the housemaids. She did survive. Good. But he did make her take a pill. God damn it. And then... Uh, he gathered everything together and headed out to his flat in Lambeth on a ship where he carried two suitcases full of drugs. <laughs> 
So look out, London. <laughs> oh, Here we come. So in, we're back in London. Yeah. It's April 1892. Okay. Okay. At 2 a.m., a constable named George Cumley was making his rounds in Lambeth. Is that like a police officer? Yeah. So they're, it's like the guy on the beat that you always see in those classic movies. You yeah, know, he has one of those nightsticks. He's like twirling it around. He has a big mustache. Right. It's the middle of the night. And uh-huh. He's just like out there patrolling the streets. Okay. And he sees this super fancy man leave an apartment and jog quickly away down an empty street into the fog. Mm-hmm. And like we said earlier, prostitution was rampant in the area and basically police just looked the other way. So no one was prosecuting people for that. Mm-hmm. So although the guy had some notable weird Mr. Peanut on a caper energy, <laughs> it was like the constable didn't pursue him. Uh-huh, he just thought, uh-huh. all right, go ahead. You're whatever. probably in trouble. You're going home, whatever. Yeah. About a half an hour later, Constable Cumley returned to the section of his beat because he's just doing the rounds. Yeah. And he sees police pulling two women out of the apartment, the very same apartment he saw the fancy man departing. Pulling them out alive or dead? They've both been poisoned. So uh. one of them has died in the apartment, but the other one gets thrown into a cap. So it's Uh 21-year-old Alice Marsh and 18-year-old Emma Shrivel. So Alice and Emma had actually just moved to London together from Brighton, which is like a beachside Mm -hmm. town. Um, They had moved there the month before to work in the Lambeth red light district. Their parents didn't even know that's what they were doing. They pawned all their stuff and they moved out there saying they got a job at a factory, Mm. but they actually moved to the red light district. So Alice died on the way to the hospital, but Emma Shrivel survived long enough in the hospital to tell Constable Cumley that they had had sex with this fancy bald man with cross eyes and a top hat that night and that the man had paid for their services and then given them each some canned salmon and three pills to take before bed. (laughs) Just as a gentleman. Yeah. Like here's some fish. He's a spoiler. You know, Uh he like goes out and gives women gifts and that's amazing. And the man had called himself Fred. Mm. So Metropolitan police jump into action and after a thorough investigation inspector george lowe reported his findings death by accidental poisoning (laughs) due to eating canned salmon god damn case closed (laughs) to his credit death from eating canned salmon was actually pretty common at the time they were really Mm. trying to crack down on that it was just improperly canned salmon was killing people but yeah this guy, Inspector George Lowe, definitely dismissed the whole, you know, deathbed sort of confession, suspicious top hat guy, yeah. literally speed walking away from the scene of the crime after giving the girls the, the pills, you know. Right. So the canned salmon must have been a ploy on Cream's part. He's like, everyone's going to think it's a salmon that killed him. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thankfully, the supervising doctor, Dr. Cuthbert Wyman, had some suspicion. Mostly, his suspicion was that canned fish death didn't cause convulsions. Or happened one minute later. (laughs) But strychnine poisoning definitely did. Yeah. And he had witnessed Emma Shrivel having those hallmark convulsions at the hospital. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. he was like, there's no way. Right. So... 
George Percival Wyatt, the same coroner who performed Ellen Donworth's autopsy. Who got the letter. Right. Autopsied the two women on Dr. Wyman's recommendation. And while they were waiting on autopsy results, an inquest into Alice and Emma's death was open, which revealed a lot of information. During the inquest, the girl's landlady, Charlotte Vaught, who sounds like a delightful lady, said when she found the girls sick after taking the pills, having convulsions, she told them it was their fault for being so stupid to take pills from a stranger, <laughs> which I feel like is very unkind. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, uh, he is a doctor. Well, this is the thing is that nobody knew that at the time. Mm. They knew this guy's name was Fred, uh-huh. right? And they knew that she he had given them fish and pills right okay but they didn't know he was a doctor so that's kind of the biggest piece of information they got from this lovely landlady was that (laughs) the girls shot back to her he's not some random stranger he's a doctor right right so then she tells them police also recovered a handwritten letter in their room that emma shrivel said was from fred now the letter itself was signed george clifton this guy is like a thousand aliases (laughs) right but police assumed fred was george clifton's alias Mm -hmm. and after testing it turned out not only was the canned salmon not contaminated it was from california and the brand wasn't sold anywhere in london so it had to have come from somebody who came from the states right connection so in that suitcase full of morphine and opium there's also some fish you got a bunch of fish man (laughs) And soon after that, the autopsy confirmed that both the women were poisoned with strychnine. So now we know. And the cop's like, see, told you. I knew it was strychnine. I mean, I just said the canned salmon thing because, you know, I mean, I don't even know why I said that. Right, right, right. So now we get all the stuff out. We see what's going on. It's Mm -hmm. not a salmon death. Now we know it's a poisoning murder. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And actually, I just want to take a brief moment to say strychnine tests were so nuts. Uh So... I'm just going to explain this in really dumb layman's terms. Okay, great. But this is how they were done in the old timey days. In the autopsy, they take all the organs and the blood and all that kind of stuff, like different things to inspect. Uh-huh. And they put them in jars. And the way you test for strychnine is you take all these specimens out of the jars and you squeeze all the liquid out of them. Right, all the body fluid. Yeah. And then you distill it down and dry it into a powder. So it's this like organ (laughs) liquid powder. Sure. And they do some stuff. They test it in some chemicals. So like if you drop it in a vial of a certain chemical, the chemical will turn purple if it's positive for strychnine. Okay. But they have a few different checklists for the ways that they determine strychnine. So they Mm -hmm. do that. And then the coroner tastes the powder to see if it's bitter. (laughs) So if the dead organ liquid that's dry is bitter, then it probably has traces of strychnine in it. And then at the end of the whole thing, they mix the powder back into a liquid and inject it into the skin of frogs to see if the frogs die of seizures. Oh, my God. You know that that was discovered because a cannibal killed someone <laughs> with strychnine and then wanted to eat them after they had dried out. I was like, it's bitter. And then they killed the next person with strychnine. They're like, you know, I think I'm sensing a pattern. Let's try killing them a different way. And then Amy's like, this is tasty. And then they, that got passed along to all the coroners. I don't think that that's how that happened. 100% but that's, guaranteed that's, that's how that happened. Wild, but I just think that's, it, it's so... Um, 
It's just so funny. <laughs> yeah, right. ah. And I, there's another little tidbit from this book that yeah. I just thought was interesting. Is poisoning in the 1800s was so common in Europe that the French nicknamed arsenic inheritance powder. Oh, no. It's <laughs> so dark. <laughs> there's like arsenic stores right next to the place where you get your wills drawn up or <laughs> whatever. kind of were. They yeah. were everywhere. Oh, no. So... In May 1982, the inquest into the death of the two girls showed that they were both poisoned with strychnine, but there was no movement on who was the actual killer. Mm -hmm. So although Donworth's death was reclassified from a suicide to a murder after the whole bad joke poison beer debacle, Mm -hmm. it was still unsolved, Mm -hmm. which meant that they now had three poisoned prostitutes and no one in custody. And the press and the public were feeling like Scotland Yard had really just botched the investigation. And we won't go super far into it, but that also obviously has roots in the fact that they never caught Jack the Ripper. Mm. That had just happened, and that person was not caught. And now you have three deaths from a poisoner, and they can't find anybody. I'm going to do a little dumb question moment here. I may not know the answer. Nick's going to have one of his things. So we just rewatched 101 Dalmatians, Mm -hmm. which totally holds up and is like a a beautiful old weird film. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like truly trippy. And they're like, did they call Scotland Yard? Scotland Yard, Scotland Yard. What? Does that just mean police department? Um, I think that I'm going to say something also equally as dumb. Yeah. I'm not quite sure it's different. So the Metropolis Police uh-huh. is like the like police department for London, I believe. And then they all have districts. So Lambeth has its own district mm-hmm. for the Metropolis Police. And I think the Scotland Yard is something similar to like the FBI. So some sort of like... Not in the sense that it's like federal Uh necessarily, I think, but maybe it is a little higher level of investigation. It might be actually. I think that they investigate like under the name of the crown. I don't know. Don't you guys listen? This is (laughs) this is dumb. I'm just like making this up. I can literally Google it. Yeah, we're. I mean, we're idiots. No, no, no. But I think that that there's a there's a hierarchical Mm -hmm. difference. So right. So if there's a murder, then they'd call the police. But if suddenly multiple women are being poisoned or 101 Dalmatians are stolen, then you go to uh, Scotland Yard. I think like, it's this, some sort of escalation. Yeah. But it a is a bigger diff- mystery afoot. Yes. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> please. Please uh, hit us up on uh Instagram and tell us. We'd like to dedicate this episode to all of our British listeners. We actually uh, don't know what we're talking about. Oh, no. I'm going to look it up. (laughs) Hold on. Okay. We pressed pause and we're back. Mira, what'd you find out? I I feel... It's okay. People can feel your love coming through the airways. Listen, I read this book and it was really fun and I just took a bunch of notes and like thought about it. But like, I thought I knew what (laughs) the Scotland Yard was, but I did not. Okay. So I'm just going to admit that. And after reading it, I think I'm more confused than I was before. Oh, no. So I think the Scotland Yard Mm -hmm. is the Metropolitan Police like headquarters. Okay. And they have jurisdiction over all of greater London. Okay. But the 
city of London has its own separate police force, and Lambeth is in the city of London. Okay. So that's what I believe the deal is at the time. So I think, according to this book, the... Well, one thing is, is they're not like the FBI. Okay. <laughs> but that's a common thing Americans think. Okay, great. Okay. Based on my Google results. Okay, nice, <laughs> nice, nice. But I think it was some sort of escalation, a little bit more uh-huh. of like a reach out, because it definitely was a bigger police department than okay. the city of London's police department. Got it. So at the time, I think that there were people botching things and then reaching out for help from other things and then collaboration. And then depending on what district the murders happened or where the bodies were buried, sometimes the jurisdiction changes. Sure. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and say this. Yeah. I, uh, I think that what we're just going to say <laughs> is that the police were involved, yes, right? right? Because this yes. is, uh, there's a lot of aspects of this. Like, you know, I, when we're talking about legal systems and I'm like, oh, yes, the acquittal of the da-da-da-da. Yeah. Here, listen, we're talking about mostly just stories and people. And yeah. sometimes these these things escape me i'm a little embarrassed but i'm gonna just keep going i'm proud of you muriel you're doing great okay well i'm medium also (laughs) since we dedicated this to our british listeners i'm so sorry it's okay don't be mad i just i thought i was doing the right thing i I'm slow. Okay. All so right. all we know is the Cruella DeVille's and Dr. Creams of the world are being chased by Scotland Yard. Or some other police <laughs> <Okay>. department. <laughs> uh, we're just going to keep going. Okay. Wonderful. At any rate, we're going to say that after Jack the Ripper, public confidence in police was a little shaken. Got it. And yeah, so yeah, yeah, when yeah. they haven't found anyone and are starting to see these murders being connected the press and the people are starting to feel outraged yeah right i mean i'm outraged (laughs) and i here i am so lambeth police were ramping up efforts they're going door to door interviewing prostitutes and finally they knock on the door of matilda clover's landlady yeah so if we remember matilda clover Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she's the woman who they say died of delirium tremens. Right. On April 27th, police interviewed the landlady and Rose, her housemaid. So Lucy Rose, again, described the tall man in a top hat, fancy overcoat, who went by the name Fred and who had visited Matilda the night of her death. Mm -hmm. So based on this interview, police end up exhuming Matilda's body and testing it for strychnine, which... Obviously came back positive. Tasted bitter. They were like, mm, there's that bitter streak. <laughs> right. So in the same month, Constable Cumley, the same constable who had witnessed the top hatted man running away from Alice and Emma's flat. Yeah. Disappearing into the fog, which is right. just such a London image. <laughs> I might have made that up. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're painting a picture. I mean, it was right. Yeah. It yeah, was yeah, in yeah. the middle of the night. I'm yeah, assuming. Yeah. There was, was some fog, <laughs> some steam coming from the grates from the streets below or whatever. <laughs> so... This constable is out on the streets kind of looking for this mysterious top-hatted Fred. Mm -hmm. So he's going to places that are known for having groups of prostitutes. He's trying to hang out outside of different venues Mm -hmm. in the city, big intersections and stuff like that. And out of the crowd, Constable Cumley spotted 
a fancy dressed guy in a top hat and glasses with one crossed eye erratically walking back and forth through the crowds staring hard at different women and prostitutes oh, no. so he's watching this guy yeah. with insane predatory behavior yeah and he says this is the guy i know i have the guy yeah so comely waits for backup and when other officers get there they follow this top-hatted guy as he visited with a prostitute and then walk back to his flat in Lambeth for the evening. I'll just add, as far as I've read, they certainly didn't warn any of the women in this story. <laughs> they just kind of cased him and yeah, followed him. Right, right. But now, but knowing that he's poisoning them behind closed doors, I just feel like that's not very responsible. Yeah. <laughs> so they did check yeah. on her a few days later. Uh -huh. She was still alive. Oh, good. And then they checked on her and questioned her yeah. to see what she knew. Yeah. So she says the top-hatted guy was an American doctor who loved to spoil women. So police decide that they're going to put this top-hatted guy under surveillance. And this top-hatted guy visits another different prostitute named Violet Beverly a few nights later. And when police interview Violet, she says that this man was a pharmaceutical rep from America and that he had shown her a leather case filled with pills. And then he had mixed her something he called an American drink with some of the contents of the suitcase. <laughs> and our girl Violet was like, bro, no. And she refused to drink it. Yeah, never drink something out of a man's suitcase. And for the first time, police thought, maybe we should tell this lady what's up. Yeah. Especially since she had an appointment with the top-hatted man later that day. So by May 19th, through all of this investigation, they finally had a legitimate name for the man they had been surveilling, Dr. Neil, a mm. man who they wouldn't find out until later was actually named Dr. Neil Crane. Right. But despite all this, police didn't think they had their guy because Dr. Neil <laughs> yeah. seemed too professional to be poisoning people. <laughs> Police thought poor Dr. Neil was yeah. just a sensual guy and that even though he was a little strange and was possibly doing some illegal stuff and even though right. he was dressed pretty much exactly the same and had the same physical build and glasses as the suspect, yeah. he probably wasn't the murderous Fred running around tricking women into ingesting pills and tonics. Right. This Dr. Neil is just a chill bro. Yeah, he's this kind This is my of guy. I like he, that guy. He goes to lots of prostitutes. He's obviously got an insatiable kind of sex thing going on, but he's yeah. not, this is, he's way too professional. <laughs> yeah. But regardless of all this, one of the prostitutes actually ended up tipping off Dr. Neil and the police monitoring was kind of blown apart. Oh. So mm. shortly after Cream discovered he was under surveillance, an American man showed up to the police station to file a complaint on behalf of his friend who was being harassed by Scotland Yard. And his friend was Dr. Thomas Neal. Of course. Right. Yes. So this is what's up with the friend. He walks into the police station and he says, I think that this is outrageous and I need to file a complaint. So 
this guy is named John Haynes. And actually, at some point, he had worked for the Scotland Yard in yeah. the past. So he really knew the ins and outs of how Scotland Yard worked. And he had noticed that while he was hanging out with Cream, they were always being tailed by police. And he's like Neil's drinking buddy. He's one of the guys that was not put off by the porn. And oh, he loved the, the bar. He loved, yeah. he loved the guy. Yeah. This is his buddy. Mm-hmm. And so he asks Neil about the police. And this is Neil's answer. He says a medical student named Walter Harper living in his building killed a woman during a botched abortion. And then Emma Shrivel and Alice Marsh tried to blackmail the med student. So the med student tried to buy some strychnine off of cream to poison the girls. And cream very valiantly said no. But cream did not go to the police (laughs) and opted to write a letter to the girls warning them of the impending poisoning. So he said, I didn't go to police, but I did let them know. And according to the doctor's friend, John Haynes, this medical student had poisoned three other women in addition to Emma and Alice. This medical student had poisoned Ellen Donworth, Matilda Clover, and Louisa Harvey. So Cream's grand idea about framing someone else was have my friend go tell the police that I knew this guy poisoned all these girls? Yeah. So that's his plan so far, right? Coincidentally, also, Coroner George Percival Wyatt had actually received a letter about Walter Harper that he had decided to ignore. Do you remember the last time? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) He thought it was another prank. (laughs) So the letter was from a man named Murray who said he had evidence implicating Walter Harper in the deaths of the poisoning victims, and he would share it with a detective for a fee. So later, Coroner Wyatt did regret dismissing both of these letters as pranks. Oh, God. But at this point, police stop investigating Cream altogether. And they start going (laughs) after Walter Harper. They're like, he just got tricked. This medical student is our guy. (laughs) Yeah. Police figured Cream wasn't actually suspicious. He just knew so much about the Lambeth poisonings because he was a big fan of prostitutes. Yeah, and right. so he followed the news and mm-hmm. he knew the girls and he was they were just like, obviously. He's up on all the gossip. He's up on all the gossip. Yeah. I mean, was this medical student even real? Well, we'll get to that. Okay. So there were a few people in Scotland Yard that were like, guys, just get a handwriting sample from Cream. This guy's <laughs> yeah, right, obviously yeah, yeah. hella shady. Just yeah. do it. And people who knew this med student, Walter Harper, said he was way too upstanding to be poisoning people. Again, that's not really evidence. Right. People need to stop saying that. Yeah. But people close to him also pointed out that he in no way matched the physical description of the suspect. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And that most importantly, it turns out he wasn't even in London when Emma and Alice were poisoned. Yeah. So police had to eventually eventually begrudgingly turn back to cream (laughs) so they have cream's american friend as a sort of informant although john haynes still thinks that cream was innocent yeah but they also found another drinking buddy of his because people love this guy sergeant mcintyre of the scotland yard was also one of cream's drinking buddies so one night 
Cream was with McIntyre and he's complaining about being under surveillance. So McIntyre's like, listen, man, let's just squash this. We're going to we're going to solve it. I'm going to invite my buddies over and we're just going to talk it out. So he invites Inspector Harvey and Chief Inspector John Mulvaney. So these are the lead investigators on the Lambeth poisoning cases yeah. to have dinner and talk things out. With cream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so at the meal, this is after all this stuff, at yeah. the meeting, cream is like, look, I used to carry around a lot of pornography, but I don't do that anymore. And I do sleep with a lot of women you know i'm not saying they're prostitutes i have a lot of sex Mm -hmm. but as far as i know sleeping with a lot of women is not illegal so i just don't know what this is all about yeah you know he tried to come super clean with everything that he thought (laughs) Mm -hmm. they knew and at this point i think at the dinner mcintyre's hackles go up Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a much more way to seem like a murderer than you really trying to explain why you're not a murderer. Right. I think in the context of the whole thing, he invites his friends to dinner. They're all <laughs> sitting there and they're talking and he hears what he's saying. Yeah, and he's right. just like, oh. It's just like when you have one of those wild ass friends where you're like, you got to meet my other friends. As soon as they meet your other friends, you're like, oh, I get it. We're I'm crazy for being your friend. <laughs> It was very like a light bulb moment. So he decides, McIntyre decides to hold another private meeting with Cream. He goes over to Cream's place and Cream tells him all kinds of stuff about the murders. He's also dropping that he had originally heard about this med student, Walter Harper, through a detective no one had heard of named Mm -hmm. Walter Murray, which also incidentally was the alias he used in the 500 notes that he had printed in Canada about that London hotel. So he's just kind of dropping these like connective sort of seeds, these little little eggs around. Yeah. So at the end of the meeting, all McIntyre really thought was, this cream guy just knows an awful lot about these murders. Yeah, yeah. So before he leaves, just for fun, McIntyre talked Cream into giving him a handwriting sample that Cream wrote elegantly out on a very expensive set of stationery, a brand called Fairfield Superfine. Uh-huh. That kind of gets filed away. Mm-hmm. And the Lambeth poisoning case is just obviously dragging on. Everyone wants police to make an arrest. Uh, Scotland Yard is kind of publicly blaming the unreliability of the women they have to interview. <laughs> Good tactic. You know who's at fault here? Everyone who's being killed. <laughs> it's really wild. So they we're still looking at Cream, right? Mm-hmm. He's still a part of this investigation. Yeah, he's a suspect. But they also thought maybe this mysterious Fred might have been some sort of sailor. So instead of putting all of their energy into investigating Cream, they're splitting their energy and canvassing the ports looking for a sailor named Fred. Okay, great. (laughs) I guess it's just very sailorly behavior to be poisoning lots of women. They had some reason or another. It's like 
they thought maybe because he was disappearing for a time. There's some like reasoning behind okay. it. And then I think it that actually started because of the canned tuna before they figured out that you couldn't buy canned tuna from them. <laughs> There's just something going okay, on, right? Okay. So it's around this time that Cream retained some lawyers to lodge a formal complaint against Scotland Yard for harassment. So he's going hard mm-hmm. saying, stop investigating me. Yeah. And basically, it came down that the investigation just needed a better lead investigator. Mm -hmm. So a man named John Bennett Turnbridge took over the case. And this man was a crackerjack guy, like a very well-known investigator. Mm -hmm. He did believe that fingerprinting was a nonsense fad. But (laughs) other than that, he was like more into real like crime fighting technique. Okay. So he came in. He says, basically... You guys have done a pretty terrible job looking for tinned salmon and sailors. <laughs> yeah. Like and also obviously it's cream. Okay. Like <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I mean, but let's just cut to the chase. Clearly it's the guy that looks <laughs> like the person everyone's saying you're killing these. Why ladies. are you looking for a sailor? <laughs> what are you talking about? And yeah, then, yeah, yeah. you know, Turnbridge says, obviously the description is a guy wearing a top hat with glasses and a weird eye. It's the same height, same weight, same age range as cream, same gold watch. Like, come on, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's the obviously the guy. So Turnbridge goes and has a meeting with cream. And unfortunately... At that time, Cream was so strung out on opioids, he was violently shaking. Oh, no. So in this meeting, (laughs) Turnbridge shows up and he's violently shaking. And Cream is like, I'm innocent. You know, I'm just a doctor. Here's my case of medicine. And he opens up his case and it's just full of drugs and then a big ass vial of strychnine. (laughs) (laughs) So at this point, they kind of start to centralize the investigation so they start to gather some of these blackmail letters putting mm-hmm. them in the same place matching yeah. them to cream's handwriting sample and also matching them to the expense of stationary cream views that could mm-hmm. only be purchased in the u.s mm-hmm. and even with all that there apparently wasn't enough hard evidence to directly link him to the killings but they could now connect him to the blackmailing attempts mm-hmm. the year prior. Right. So Cream ended up being arrested for extortion on June 3rd, 1892. And they still don't know that this is the Cream that just got out of jail for 10 years for killing someone in America. Right. They kind <laughs> of don't know a lot of his past yet. Yeah, okay. In fact, at this point, they don't even know his last name is Cream. <laughs> They still think it's Dr. Neal. Okay. So Cream is denied bail and police go to his apartment. They go through all his stuff and they figure out what his real name is. Mm-hmm. He's Dr. Thomas Neal Cream. Yeah. Right? And also bad news for Cream. Scotland Yard actually sent this bulldog detective to North America to reconstruct his past. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. how we get a lot of the stuff that we talked about earlier is this detective had gone and just collected everything and he had talked to all these people, right? So a month later in July, 1892, even though Cream is sitting in jail on extortion charges, they still don't have any, like I said, hard evidence directly linking him to any of the poisonings. So the investigation is trucking along and after interviewing local pharmacists, police are starting to piece together that Cream was using tons of strychnine and empty pill capsules. So they're starting to build this case, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. 
They also found more blackmail letters being kept on file in different districts. Yeah. And they're starting to see this pattern emerge or this information is coming out. The letters are mentioning strychnine as the poison used in the Lambeth poisonings before the coroner had finished some of these autopsies. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, the yeah. dates are wrong. Yeah. Like nobody would have known. Yeah. And also they're starting to see these letters that claim Matilda Clover had been poisoned with strychnine, even though her official cause of death was alcohol withdrawal. Yeah. So bad news bears for cream, right? <laughs> At this point, they finally exhume Matilda's body and do a coroner's inquest. So at this point, she's just been buried this whole time. Yeah. And... This time, Matilda's body was in possession of the coroner who presided over the jurisdiction of Mid-Surrey, where she had been buried. So, Mr. Coroner, quote, all the letters are pranks, Wyatt, was out. <laughs> yeah. And a new, much more <laughs> thorough coroner, Braxton Hicks, was in. Mm -hmm. So even though Wyatt had presided over the inquests of Ellen Donworth, Alice March, and Emma Shrivel, Hicks would preside over the coroner's inquest regarding the death of Matilda Clover, which is really a linchpin piece of this puzzle. Yeah. So after the autopsy, Matilda was found with strychnine in her body tissue. And the witnesses, the actual witnesses to her death, like that one original doctor, mm -hmm. and then the landlady and her maid all described what basically doctors would call symptoms of strychnine poisoning, not delirium tremens. Yeah. And the discrepancies in the death certificate were finally brought to light. And it helps the police case because the attending physician was negligent in signing off her death as delirium tremens. So really, like, you get to see that that whole idea of her dying of delirium tremens totally falls apart. The, right. The person who signed the death certificate never even saw her die. Right. So all of that just comes to light. Right. Yeah. Now, during the coroner's inquest into matilda's murder there were a few hiccups connecting cream to the actual murder so some of the witnesses called weren't able to pick cream out of a lineup and a huge part of the case against cream rested on this handful of letters some from the extortion case some to coroner wyatt mm -hmm. and a handwriting sample and i think some other correspondence and they had this world-renowned handwriting expert come in and testify that the handwriting on all of the blackmail letters matched the handwriting on Cream's sample. But Cream's former fiance, Laura Sabatini, took the stand. Yeah. In the coroner's inquest. Oh, I forgot about her. Yeah. In the coroner's inquest. And she testified that the extortion letters all matched the same handwriting because she had actually written them all for Cream. Mm. So she provides a handwriting sample and it looks like their handwriting was similar. Yeah. But it was not. Cream's handwriting. Oh, okay. Are they still engaged at this point? What's no, their okay. that's that I think that went out the window okay, okay. <laughs> at some point. I don't remember what. I think he was super shady to her mom or something yeah. like that. Uh, I mean that I'm sure he was. <laughs> Why how <laughs> I would be shocked if they were like he was real a real gentleman around the house. Yeah, right. Yeah. But what this ended up doing was basically destroying the credibility of this world class handwriting expert. Mm. Basically because even if Laura Sabatini wrote the letters. She was able to testify that they were written by the direction of Cream. Yeah. So because of that, toward the end of this inquest, the extortion case against Cream looked really promising. Yeah, in a lot of ways, that's more damning evidence than some 
expert coming and saying the the way he crosses his t's proves and said this lady's like no i mean he didn't write those letters but i did because he told me to right exactly so that seems way more stable yeah but the murder case against him for the death of matilda clover was kind of falling apart Mm -hmm. they still didn't have the evidence that they needed and the discrediting of this handwriting witness throws a wrench in things because now you can kind of say well it's up in the air which letters he wrote and which letters he didn't okay but louisa harvey somewhere i believe in brighton read the paper and found an article about a cross-eyed top-hatted American doctor mm-hmm. on trial for poisoning a prostitute with mystery pills. Yeah, and she was like, mm, happened to me, I just happened to throw it in the river. Well, and she saw herself listed as one of the potential victims because she's one of the ones that has had her name thrown around as poisoning victims. Oh, Nobody had found any sort of death report for yeah. her, but at one point she was named. So she's like, I'm alive, and he was the one that tried to kill me. Exactly. So Louisa had started a new life in Brighton, but she was absolutely willing and ready to testify at the coroner's inquest. Mm -hmm. And she showed up to testify looking like a queen. She had (laughs) this gorgeous green dress and this massive hat that was trimmed with all these fresh, bright roses. And she was calm and collected. She got in front of the court and she told the jury all about weirdo cream, trying to feed her the pills for her acne and then her throwing them down the embankment and of taking them so after this things were going poorly for old cream and this is when he also started acting super weird at the inquest oh he'd been chill up until this point yeah basically or weird and broody or whatever but at this point he started acting as if the trial was going extremely well oh no so he was smiling and like laughing at things and you know, shaking people's hands. He was going up to the prosecutors and smiling and being like, I'll get you next time. Yeah, right. Like, it's all a big joke. Yeah. And then, basically, they start to wrap up this inquest. So this is not his murder trial, right? This is Uh just the inquest into Matilda's death, trying to figure out if anyone can be charged. Yeah. On one of the last days, Coroner Hicks comes to the court and he says, I have received an odd note in the mail and this is what the note says dear sir the man you have in your power dr neil is as innocent as you are knowing him by sight i disguised myself like him and made the acquaintance of the girls that have been poisoned i gave them pills to cure them of all their earthly miseries and they died miss l harris that's uh louisa harvey who had Uh changed her name has got more sense than I thought she had, but I shall have her yet. If I were you, I'd release Dr. Neal, or you might get into trouble. His innocence will be declared sooner or later, and when he is free, he might sue you for damages. Beware all, I warn, warn but once. And the letter was signed, Dr. Cream. Jack the Ripper. (laughs) So the entire court just started laughing. Like everybody just started laughing as soon as they get that that little button. Apparently even Cream was laughing. Like it was like, ha, 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 what yeah. a crazy note that is. Yeah. I didn't write know. <laughs> So Cream was, <laughs> I just can't stand that note. I know. 
So Cream was the final witness called and he refuses to testify. So the jury deliberated for about 12 minutes uh-huh. and then charged him for Matilda Clover's murder mm-hmm. by poisoning. And the murder trial was to follow. So on October 7th, 1892, the trial commences. After the coroner's inquest, Dr. Cream was indicted on seven counts. So that means he was like accused of seven things, right? Yeah. For, formally accused. Okay. The murders of Matilda Clover, Ellen Donworth, Alice March, Emma Shrivel, attempted murder of Louisa Harvey, and two counts of blackmail. Yeah. Now, the trial would only focus on Matilda Clover. I'm just going to briefly go over this because it rehashes a lot of what the inquest covers and there's yeah, lots right. of ins and outs that yeah. obviously I'm not <laughs> I'm here I'm a broad picture person okay right? great yeah but Louisa Harvey was a star witness again uh, which I just love she's just out there kicking ass she's showing up like oh yeah you guys only listen to fancy people watch how fancy a fancy person can be yeah look at my hat B <laughs> after the trial concluded I think it took less than an hour of deliberation when the jury pronounced Thomas Neal Cream guilty for Matilda Clover's death and sentenced him to death. So Thomas Neal Cream was executed on November 15th, 1892, just a little over a year after being released from prison. How? How'd they kill him? Oh my God, I'm obviously about to tell you that. Okay, great. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so it used to be that executions were public. That's no longer the case at this time, but they did have the gallows, so it was a hanging. They did have the gallows in a private brick shed. Mm-hmm. So even though they're not public anymore, it's estimated that about 5,000 Londoners came to be in the vicinity while the execution was occurring. Just to be around the murder shed while yeah. he's getting hung in there. And it's October yeah. Yeah. in London, so it's like pouring down rain. Yeah. All these people are just standing around outside. They march cream into the brick shed and sounds like kind of unceremoniously hang him. Yeah. And after the hanging, the prison guards will raise a black flag to indicate that the execution was done. And the whole crowd just erupts into cheers outside of the prison. Mm. And they cut Cream down after a while and they bury him in an unmarked grave in the prison cemetery. And that's the end of his life. His family didn't ever try to get the body back or anything like that. The no. family just was done with him. As far as I know, I don't think that they attempted to, but they definitely didn't. That's his final resting place. Did they show up at the trial or show any sort of... Not as far as I know. I don't yeah. think that they showed up at all. Huh. Um, the reason I asked how he died is because I was wondering if they did lethal injection back then and if there was some weird ironic twist to the like him being poisoned at the I end think of that it. that was a little later. Uh-huh. I think it was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was still hanging. And the reason why I say unceremoniously is apparently they pulled the lever right when he was saying his last words. Oh, damn. Which I don't know. It sounds like maybe that's like lore, but... It happened inside the brick shed. Who knows? Right. There is a witness who Uh says that his last words were, I am Jack. And then they pulled the lever. That sounds like some fake ass shit. Like he was going to claim to be Jack the Ripper. Well, also, I read somewhere else. I think this is Wikipedia and I couldn't figure out what the actual source was, but that they were saying he got too confused and 
aroused by the situation and said, I am ejaculating. Oh and then God. Got it. But I'm like, I don't think that's oh my God. <laughs> there well, is probably, like a theory. Yeah, there yeah, is yeah. a theory that he yeah. could have been Jack the Ripper. Uh-huh. But it's like nobody really thinks that that's true. I think yeah. the theory is based on this idea that he was had this high powered family and he really didn't spend 10 years in prison and uh-huh. he was able to have, you know, cause you know, identification was just so minimal back then. Yeah. They were saying, Oh, he had a, a dummy, you know, a, a different guy, a yeah. Patsy. Right. Do serve his, his jail time. Right. And while he was doing that, he was actually in like London stabbing ladies. Yeah, but I mean, the crimes, like the method of killing doesn't match anything that he's ever done. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't really make any sense. But that's the that's the wild ass conspiracy. Oh, my God. I, the, I'm ejaculating. <laughs> it's just too much. I mean, probably he was going through withdrawals, right? Because he couldn't get his his drugs. Definitely. You know what I mean? And then they, I am Jack the Ripper. Oh, no. <laughs> he's like he's like i am iron man and they just pull it right at the last second it's so messed up i mean he could have just been saying it it's like that letter is a real hail mary yeah, and he right. did write that and sign it i mean like yeah. that's obvious it was obviously him <laughs> you just love sending coroner's letters man did he ever admit to chloroforming that woman to death that we heard about in the very first episode. No, and he didn't have to. He never went on trial. I guess I'm just curious if anyone after the fact was like, oh yeah, that was the guy that, you know, confessed to me about brutally murdering this woman with chloroform just because that was the only hands-on murder, it sounds like. But then the testimony of being on the bank or whatever was really like obviously them taking it was a big point of uh you know pride for him he really wanted to see them take it you know it's weird i all the information that we got from north america like his life there yeah from canada and chicago it was pieced together mm-hmm. by second hand witnesses or first hand witnesses or mm-hmm. people in the town it was just a part of the investigation so i didn't hear anything about him talking specifically about the chloroform death. I will say this is that he did do his thesis in medical school was on chloroform. So he had definitely like studied it and studied its effects and stuff like that. And, and that chloroform death was pretty soon after he had done his thesis. So yeah, earlier in his career. So I could see those things being connected. Oh man. I could just see this guy. I just, this guy is just the worst, but I could just see him being like, I'm really into poison and I think women should be murdered. And then he does a chloroform thing and he's like, ah, oh my God, that was horrible. I guess I'll just give them pills and leave. Right. It's like a little easier. (laughs) Yeah. He doesn't want to get his hands dirty. Yeah. I mean, he's just a monster and it's just so crazy to me how much he got away with. Because of a top hat. Yeah. It's pretty wild. I mean, I think that that's, a story that has happened before, you know, yeah, but I just sure. was, I, when I heard this story for the first time, you know, I just kept going over and over in my head and thinking there couldn't be a more distinctive looking person if you tried, <laughs> unless he was, yeah. I don't know, eight feet tall with a giant <laughs> like orange Afro or something. It's, yeah, 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 It was yeah. like, this guy's pretty distinctive looking. <laughs> yeah. Unless he was carrot top. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I don't know. I just thought it was really, it's super interesting. 
Well, your little inquiring scholastic mind is very contagious, you know? Well, I feel dumb about the Scotland Yard thing. Oh, well, that's my fault. You can just blame me for that. I'm the one that set you up for failure. No. (laughs) What's so hard is with this kind of stuff, when you're doing... Like, I really have a fun time reading all of this stuff. And you're reading and you're getting really into it. And then you... Like, for me, I'll go over the script again before we get started. And I'm like, oops. Oh, I... I mix those two names up, yeah. and, you know, you, you double check and try to make sure like your information is correct. Yeah. But larger concept things <laughs> really test the boundaries of your just latent knowledge. Yeah. Right. So when, you, when it's really, it's so insane to get through and think like, wow, that was so interesting. And you have to make some choices, right? Like in terms of the letters. Yeah the way that those come into play is actually really complicated and interesting, yeah. but it would add 45 minutes to the story if I really like trace the lineage. So I kind of pick some things and lump them together to try to shorten them and yeah. just kind of give the essence of the impact you of made what some they meant. editorial decisions. I mean, you have to, cause I mean, right. I'm not going to, you know, that's part of the fun of it is you read the story and then you're thinking about a <laughs> yeah, way you to tell, tell your it. husband, like the right, fun version, right? the fun version of it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just stuff like the Scotland Yard, man. When you just realize like how little you know about something. I mean, I couldn't tell you the difference between the FBI and the CIA. I mean, I think that it's really, um, I was going to say damaging. It's just very like traumatic to be having to sit here and be like, oh man, I just don't. That's a larger concept that I didn't know. When you think you're ready to go, and yeah, like, well, right. how does the solar system actually work? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, that's how I feel every time I do one of these cases about religion because I uh-huh. just don't have a frame of reference for it. Right. And so I'll start to be talking about it and I'm like writing about it and I just go like, this makes no sense. You're like, I'm Muriel. This podcast is Muriel's Murders, and I don't know anything. Here we go. It's kind of like that. It's uh, like a water slide. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Well, what was the book that made you slip down this treacherous trail? <laughs> it's called The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream. Yeah. The Hunt for a Victorian Era Serial Killer by Dean Job. I would super recommend this. There's lots of really interesting side notes that we just didn't have time to talk about that are covered in this book, but it's beautifully written and I really enjoyed it. Well, Muriel, I really enjoyed your love letter to our British listeners. I'm so sorry about (laughs) Scotland Yard. I'm going to be embarrassed about that. so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. You heard it. Muriel did all the research (laughs) and I do all the editing and post-production and it was recorded right here in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. And as you heard at the beginning of this episode, we shout you out by name when you sign up. So, uh, you know, that's because we love you. Also, find us on social media at Muriel's Murders on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. We draw and animate little bonus content cartoons for you. They're hilarious. Our DMs are open. We want to hear from you. Big shout out to all of the people that have been sending us love, especially all of you British listeners that have been DMing us. Thank you so much. You can also email us 
at murielsmurders at gmail.com. Please rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us grow. And if you're listening on Spotify, please consider adding this episode to a playlist of podcasts you think your friends might tune into. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. He has a very fun feed. He posts lots of instrumentals. His music is great, and you get to see his pretty face. Find him at Castellini Beats. Thank you to Ryan and Ryan at Campfire Media. And if you want more Nick and Muriel, please check out our non-murder podcast, Hell in Your 30s. It comes out every Monday wherever you are listening to this podcast. That's it. Have a great day. Imagine a podcast. Now, imagine a musical. Now, imagine the two of them made one million babies. Well, you don't have to imagine it because it's real and it has a name. One million musicals. Each month, we bring you a brand new original podcast musical featuring talent from across Broadway, films, and TV. You'll hear tales of spooky ghosts, Wild West shootouts, adventures on the high seas, and much, much more. One million musicals. Only a few hundred thousand to go. A Campfire Media Podcast. Campfire.